If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to please open it to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible with you, or have an app on your phone for the Bible, there are copies of the Scripture located in the back of the chairs near where you are seated, and I encourage you to please make use of those. We'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. It's been a, another good week at the Herod House. The Lord has blessed us tremendously. In many ways, we feel that Emma has gone beyond the baseline she had established two or three months ago in the way that she is initiating some movement and her responses are getting just a, a little bit quicker and a little more sharp. So we've been very grateful and encouraged by that. So yeah, we'll praise the Lord. It is, it is God. And we know that. Amen. Amen. We are diving into the beginning of an argument that the preacher of Hebrews is making. Hebrews was actually a sermon. A sermon that's been recorded for us because the message given in it is one that believers throughout all generations have needed to hear. Hebrews was preached at a time when the church was being persecuted. There was a uniqueness to this persecution, however. Those who were Jews had been grandfathered in by the Roman Empire so that they would not be persecuted for worshiping Yahweh. It was a way the Roman Empire could keep peace throughout the empire. However, Christians were not exempt. If you as a believer profess that Jesus Christ is Lord rather than Caesar, you would suffer. So the temptation became very real for many believers to stop professing Jesus Christ as Lord and to go back to the Jewish faith. So the preacher of Hebrews delivers this message to a congregation saying, don't turn your back on Jesus. He is your salvation. He is supreme. In fact, one of the main points as the preacher is delivering this message based on Psalm 110 is that Jesus is superior to all things. He is superior to angels. He is superior in the covenant that he initiates. He is superior to Moses. He is a superior high priest. And that's where the preacher begins in the passage that we look at. So I direct your attention to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of God. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, your word is truth. Never changing, eternal. And Lord, it speaks to us today. So grant us fresh ears to hear you this morning as we turn our thoughts toward Christmas and the miracle of the Incarnation, Father, I pray that you would help us to pause, to meditate, to drink deeply of this truth and what it means. Grant that we would put down deep roots in who you are 
so that when the challenges of this world blow against us, we will stand firm. Grant it, Lord, I pray through Jesus, my Lord. Amen. I think with the coming of Christmas comes many memories also. It's very common. I think all of us do. We look back on memories of our childhood. Christmas is past. I always look back with fondness upon Christmas Eve because we would gather around and, and as a Herod family, we would open the gifts that were underneath the tree one at a time, watching each person open so we could all just celebrate and laugh at the gift that you either wanted or got stuck with. It always cracked me up when we came to mom because my dad had a habit that one of two things would happen. Either on Christmas Eve, he would say, Mark, come with me. We're going to Merle Norman to get your mama something. Or he would have said, Gene, my mom's name was Imogene. Imogene, just go pick out something for yourself. We'll put it under the tree then. It'll be good. More and more I see the wisdom of that. This Christmas, however, my mother got the best of him. Because under the tree, there was just this large envelope to Imogene from Arnold. Mom picks up the envelope and she goes, for me? And Dad just looks and nods. She opens it up, pulls out this brochure, and then my little mother went ballistic. She jumped up and a smile was on her face and she was almost giddy saying, he got it for me, he got it for me, he got it for me. And Dad was going, I got what? I got what? What did I get for you? And it was a brochure for a trip to Europe. Now, the beauty of it, there was no trip. This was just to see Dad's face, and I think that was the last year he let her pick out a gift. <laughs> totally unexpected. Totally unexpected. But priceless. I think when it comes to the incarnation, we can have a tendency to take the truths that, that are precious, priceless, in many ways grow used to them without thinking about the ramifications. As Brittany eloquently shared this morning in lighting the unity candle, the love of Christ. Nathan, reading from Romans 5 about how even while we were ungodly, he died for us. And this morning in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, I want to look at one of the unexpected gifts of the incarnation. One of the results of the incarnation that we often overlook. Now in this command, there are two, or in this passage, there are two primary commands. The first is in verse 14, where he says, hold fast our confession. The second command is in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. But before we dive into those commands, I want us to look at the reason why those commands are given. I want us to understand the rationale for them. I want us to look at the doctrine out of which those commands flow. You see, in the scripture, commands are not just left out on an island. Anything God commands us to do as believers is based upon who He is. Commandments flow out of doctrine. What you believe serves as the basis for what God commands us to do. So let's start with the why. Why are these commands given? And we begin to see the doctrine out of which these commands flow in verse 14. And it begins with an identification of who Jesus is. Verse 14. We have a great high 
priest. So we start with this doctrine of who he is, who Jesus is. He is a great high priest. Now, as Protestants, the role of priest is one that is very foreign to us. It's not a currency we're used to dealing in. But a priest's primary role was to represent humanity to God. When a prophet would come, a prophet would preach on behalf of God to the people. But a priest represents the people to God. A priest stands in the presence of God on behalf of the people. He makes intercession for, he, he makes atonement for, he offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. The idea of a priest in Hebrews is closely associated with the idea of a mediator. A mediator works to bring two sides that are often at, at antipathy with one another together. He serves as a bridge between the two. So Jesus' role as a priest is to span the gap between us and God by representing our interest in front of God. The best analogy I could think of this today would be an agent. The sports agent. While athletes make hundreds of millions of dollars, often those contracts are negotiated by agents who act on behalf of that athlete. One of the best known agents in the world today is a man by the name of Scott Boris. He has represented such famous baseball players as Alex Rodriguez and Mark Teixeira. At the height of his career, his four top deals equaled $701 million, of which he made 10% of each year. $70 million. It's tough to get by on. But he was good at what he did. His one job was this, to represent the interest of his client in front of that owner. You and I have an agent, as it were. Representing us before God. Standing in the gap. Working on our behalf. Representing us. And he is not just a good high priest at what he does. Look at the description. He is a great high priest. Our representative is a great high priest. So the question is, what makes Jesus great? Now chapters 5 through 8 of Hebrews goes into great detail explaining why Jesus is a great high priest. And one of the names or one of the reasons that the preacher of Hebrews gives is because Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Now it's easy for us to say Melchizedek who? But this line of thinking is crucial because if you talk about Jesus as a priest, you automatically run into a serious problem. According to the Old Testament, from what line must the priest come? The tribe of Levi. But Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah. So the problem is, how can Jesus be a priest, let alone a great priest, if he's not even from the priestly line? That's why the preacher of Hebrews goes to great pain to reintroduce us to a man by the name of Melchizedek, who is the high priest of Salem, a man to whom Abraham himself bowed down to give homage and ties to in Genesis chapter 14. So he is saying that Jesus is a, not of the line of Levi. He is a priest of the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek was superior to the line of Levi. And the reason he is superior to the line of Levi is that when Abraham kneeled down, all of Abraham's line would kneel down before this high priest. Melchizedek was a priest because of the 
calling of God and a righteous life that represented God. And so Jesus is a great high priest because of that reason. But I don't have time to go into all that. There are reason enough here, verse 14, without talking about Melchizedek. Look at what he says. Jesus is a great high priest because of his position. He has passed through the heavens. Passed through means traveled across. He has gone through. He's not in the lobby. He's in the main room. And the idea of heaven is indeed the dwelling place of God. In Hebrews, heaven is pictured as a temple. So when it speaks of the great high priest passing through the heavens, the idea is that Jesus is moving through the temple into the Holy of Holies. If you still have your Bibles open, look over to Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 explains this a little more. The first words of verse 19 should give peace to our souls. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Here's the anchor of your soul, believer. When the winds of this world blow against you and when the storms of suffering come, here is the anchor that will wet your soul down. This truth, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of, and there he is again, Melchizedek. What's our anchor of our soul? What is the hope that anchors us? We have a hope that is Jesus that has gone into the place behind the curtain. What was behind the curtain? The holy of holies where God himself is. Jesus represents you. He represents me, believer, face to face with his heavenly father. No middleman, no go-between, just Jesus with his father standing on behalf of us. If you've ever dealt with, with medical equipment companies or insurance, you know what it's like to be put on hold and to wait. And to wait. And to wait. And to wait. And to listen to music that you pray you never hear again unless you're on a brief ride on an elevator. I've learned to keep a book nearby. The longest I've waited is an hour and 15 minutes on the phone. But Jody and I have learned a little trick in all of our endeavors over the last three years. When you speak to the first person, God bless them. But more than likely, you're not going to get much help. God bless them. So here's what you do. You utter this phrase, may I speak with your supervisor? And we have found that when you ask to speak with the supervisor and you begin talking with the supervisor, usually things can get done. So my question has always been, why can't I just talk to the supervisor to begin with? Let's just start there. Instead of going through the middleman who says, well, I can't really do anything. So here is Jesus who is standing on our behalf, face to face with God the Father, representing you in the very presence of God. But it's also proven that he is a great high priest by his resume. Look at how Jesus is described next. He is our great high priest passed through the heavens. That is, in the holy of holies, in the presence of God, he is Jesus. Now look at the next phrase, the Son of God. That's his resume. 
He stands in God's presence as God's son. Now, let's do a, do a little work here to clarify the meaning of this. There's been a lot of debate over the last 10 years as to whether that phrase should be translated going into scripture that's going out into to Muslim countries because... That phrase, the Son of God, carries with it connotations that somehow God had a child physically by Mary, which of course we know is not true. So that's where it's important, I believe. Don't throw that phrase out. It's too important theologically. Rather, explain it. Son of God is not about biological relationship as much as it is character. You see, in the scripture, in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, often a way a person's described, or their temperament, or their characteristic, is to use the phrase son of to describe them. For example, James and John. They were known as sons of thunder. Why? Because often they would fly off the handle. I mean, you have James and John. Whenever they were upset, they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, call down fire upon them from heaven. Sons of thunder. In the Old Testament, it's frequently the ideas what a person in, encounters or not encounters but represents. They're referred to as the son of. In Deuteronomy, there are some children, some teenagers that were very, very rebellious. And they are referred to as the sons of the beatings. Because that characterized them. So when it says that Jesus is the son of God. It means that Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. You see, you and I by faith are adopted into the family of God. We become children of God. In Matthew it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But we are not sons of God like Jesus is the Son of God. He represents God because He is God par excellence, none like Him. He is God incarnate. He is the Son of God, the full representation of God. In fact, that's how Hebrews begins. Jesus is the representation, the exact icon of who God is to see Jesus is to see and to know God. And nobody compares to that resume as he represents us. He is qualified. I got cracked up this week. I was watching a clip from a tournament that was taking place, a golf tournament taking place in the Bahamas. Tiger Woods had sponsored a tournament. He does every year. This year it was to raise money for his foundation as well as to rebuild a lot of the damage that took place on those islands when the hurricane came through. Well, it's a tradition on the first tee you're introduced. So Tiger Woods is playing with a good friend of his, another golfer by the name of Justin Thomas. Both outstanding golfers. So Tiger Woods steps up and the introduction begins. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you the winner of the 2019 Masters. Five-time hero champion. Winner of 82 PGA events. Three U.S. Opens. Three British Championships. Four PGA Championships. And five Masters, Mr. Tiger Woods. And of course, everybody erupts. Justin Thomas comes up next. Here's his introduction. From Louisville, Kentucky, Justin Thomas. It's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? This resume of one communicating, wow, look at who he is, what he's done. Jesus carries the resume that he is the Son of God, representing us because he knows. See, that's the third reason that he is a great high priest. Look at verse 15. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The preacher puts it in the negative, but you could restate it in the positive. You and I have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Who can say, I understand. To sympathize refers to not just emoting, not just doing what I did a few minutes ago and saying, bless their heart. To sympathize means the idea of coming alongside, putting an arm around and saying, I am with you in this. And he can do this because, according to the text, he knows our weaknesses. Now, weaknesses is a broad term. It refers to physical, emotional, and spiritual weaknesses. Jesus knows what it means to be physically weak. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to feel the heat of the sun and the coolness of the night. He knows weakness emotionally. If you've ever been so heartbroken you feel like the tears will never stop, Jesus has been there. He knows what it is to weep. He knows what it is to feel broken. But those two are really in the background because the primary issue is moral. Because look where the preacher goes. He can sympathize with our weakness, but in every respect has been tempted as we are. So the issue is he understands our weaknesses in relation to temptation. And the reason he understands is since he was fully man as well as being fully God, he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to feel that pull to do things contrary to God's will. That's why in the garden Jesus prays, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because the issue is not whether we have technology that allows us to sin quicker, but the issue is the very nature of sin itself. When Jesus was tempted to turn bread, rocks into bread, his temptation was this, fulfill your desires apart from God. That was the temptation. When Jesus was tempted to throw himself off the temple and allow the angels to catch him, that was the temptation of pride. Prove it. Prove it. Be prideful. Show who you are. When Satan said, bow down before me and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world, it was a way to gain power apart from God. Those are the basis of the temptations you and I face. And here's the crucial difference in every temptation. Jesus never once yielded. So you understand his resume is not just he is the son of God, but he is the perfect man. If you and I were to seek someone to stand in our place in front of God and they presented their resume, here would be the problem. At the top of their resume in red bold letters would be the word sinner. On the top of Jesus' resume is sinless, representing us before God. And that is incredibly great news. To get the weight of that news and the joy it should bring, you have to look back to what was said just before the passage I read. Look back to verse 11 in chapter 4. The preacher encourages the hearers, strive to enter the rest of God. Don't fall by the same sort of disobedience that plagued Israel. Look at verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now look at the next verse. 
No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God knows. That's why this is such a terrifying verse. The author of the Sherlock Holmes novels, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was said to be a practical joker. It said that one night he sent a telegram to 12 of his best friends. The telegram simply said this. All has been discovered. Flee the country at once. And it said that 10 out of the 12 made arrangements to leave the country the next day. How would you respond if you got a letter like that? I know everything. I know it all. God does. And that's why the preacher then turns to this incredible promise. Since we have a great high priest, don't despair. If you feel undone because God knows the deepest, darkest sins that you feel like you've kept hidden from everyone, don't fear His judgment. Rather, hold to what we are commanded to do because Jesus is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So do this, church. Hold on to the confession of who Jesus is. Don't turn back. Hold tightly. Don't deny Him. Hold firm to your faith in word and in deed. Don't stop indeed trusting Him and believing Him. It's been said that when Polycarp, the elder bishop of Smyrna, was being taken to die a martyr's death, since he was aged, they looked at him and said, Polycarp, there's no need for you to die. Just renounce Jesus and you'll be saved. Polycarp responded by I have served him these 80 and 6 years, and he has never once failed me. How could I deny him now? Church, hold firm to the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Even in the midst of our weaknesses, cling to that. But also cling to him indeed in what we do. I think our greater danger is not denying Jesus with our mouths. It's denying him with our lives. Brennan Manning put it like this, quote, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny Him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. Hold fast to Christ. Even when we struggle and fail, heed the, the command of verse 15. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of God that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. When you struggle feeling overwhelmed by the sin, when you feel like the suffering is too great to bear, when you feel the persecution because you refuse to reject Jesus as Lord, draw near to Him in prayer with confidence. Not based on our righteousness, but upon His righteousness. Not based on the good works that we would fill our resume with, because those good works do not amount to anything in the sight of God. But come to Him based upon the righteousness and the good works of Jesus who's representing you. So don't despair, because the promise is this. 
When you draw near to the throne of grace in prayer and in seeking Him, you will receive mercy and grace to help you at the time you need it. He is faithful and true. More and more I feel myself being drawn into the technological age. I can't even say the word. I've reached that point and I'm paying for when I used to laugh at my dad because he couldn't figure out how to work the VCR as I look at my son and say, how do you get this to work? Life does indeed come back on us, doesn't it? Our TV is connected through the internet. So we watch, whatever we watch, we watch through the internet. And every now and then this sign will come up on the screen. Not connected. Wi-Fi out. What I've figured out to do is this. I go over to the TV, I reach behind it, and I unplug it. And I count to ten, and I plug it back in. And it reboots. A reboot. Begin again. I wonder how many of us this morning need a reboot. A chance to get plugged back in. This passage is saying you have a great high priest who will allow you to do that. Take him at his word.